It's Monday, February 19th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and it's President's Day. Man, do I love the presidents. I love the presidents. I love Stephen Bandrauzak, the president of uh, Xerox. Bandrauzak, B-A-N-D-R-O-W-C-Z-A-K. I love David McLean. He was the president of the uh, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, the parent organization that put that together. He started as president of the Dick the Bruiser fan club, the professional wrestler Dick the Bruiser. I don't think it had all of the suggestivity back then in the 50s that it might now. Also, I found out about David McLean. He uh, tried to launch the Triple Crown of Polo when he was president of, I suppose, that organization. Another president I love is, of course, Mary Papazian, president of San Jose University. But I think on this day, we mostly celebrate a different sort of president, the presidents of the United States. I know I have in the past, and so I shall bring you two great interviews that consider not just a president, but all the presidents and rank them. My guests back in 2019 were Brian Lamb and Susan Swain, of each of C-SPAN, love C-SPAN, love Lamb. And they were there talking about the presidents, noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives. That's fun. But but what are the standards to rank the presidents? Strength in war, stewardship of the economy. That brings me to my other interview. This one took place in March of 2018. I talked to Kate and J.D. Dobson, and they were out with a book called The Hottest Heads of State. They consider... The quiet charisma of Ulysses S. Grant, Franklin Pierce's youthful charm, the distinguished eyebrows of Warren G. Harding. Yes, the Dobsons are the authors of The Hottest Heads of State, Volume 1, The American President. I don't know that there was a sequel. I do know that when they came by for an interview, they gave me a Theodore Roosevelt candle, and I still, I still light it up and enjoy its musky scent, much like... Theodore Roosevelt himself. Enjoy these interviews on this, our President's Day. All right, we're counting down the top 43 chief executives of the United States. Start with James Buchanan all the way up to number one, Abraham Lincoln. We're right now on number 37. Coming in with a bullet, it's Millard Fillmore. All right, would that be more exciting than what I've got before me, which is a book called The Presidents? Noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives? I think not, because The Presidents is put together by the brain trust that runs C-SPAN, and C-SPAN has been ranking The Presidents for years and how some of these rankings have changed is quite interesting, as is the contents of the book. It is based on interviews that Brian Lamb of C-SPAN did with noted presidential biographers. The editor of this book is Susan Swain. Brian and Susan are here with me. Thank you for joining me, guys. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. So let's start. I'm sure this is where everyone starts, but fine. Chester A. Arthur. I think he's unfairly maligned. He, (laughs) here's my case for Chester A. Arthur. You know, you only have to be president in the time that you have to be president. Abraham Lincoln had a great war upon him. George Washington, of course, was the father of the country and the first president. Given the job that Chester A. Arthur was handed, I think he left the country better off. If I had to file a performance review of Chester A. Arthur, it would be quite a glowing review. I think he exceeded expectations. Do you agree or disagree? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I think we ought to say up front that 
the most important part of this book, Mike, are the authors of these books that we interviewed. It's really a book about presidents and historians more than it is a book about ratings. The ratings thing is fun to do, but in the end, all of these individuals deserve credit for having led the country. So two of the presidents who've had reassessments, not just from your panel of historians, but historians in general, are Andrew Jackson and Ulysses S. Grant. And the reason for the reassessments is similar. It's mostly in the treating of African Americans, or even broader than that, in Jackson's case, um, Native Americans, African Americans. And my question is, is that fair in terms of history, or is that more a reflection of the current mores of our time? Well, of course, we can really only judge them through our own eyes. I mean, that's understandable. And one of the things, even in the 20 years that we've been doing this survey, watching certain presidents go up and down, it's it's because our society has been changing so much during that period of time that the lens through which historians, even though they uh, have some sort of professional distance in the process, they're human. Um, and they're they're reading new biographies that coming that are coming out and working off of new papers. But around them, our own standards are changing. And so how we view these presidents and their performance has to be colored by that to some degree. You know, one of the categories, we did 10 categories uh, in this survey, which was developed by presidential historians. And one of them was performance within the context of their times. And that was intentionally added to give them a, a, a bit of a a pass, I'd say, for the fact that the presidency was very different in the time in which they served and the country was very different. Also, Mike, on Ulysses, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, I can't even speak, there have been four or five major uh, books written in yeah, the last Turnout, 10 years. Turnout, one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turnout, Ronald S. White did a brilliant book uh, a year before Turnout did. There's also the John Marsalek uh, it's annotated uh, memoir, and it, it goes on and on. There are many other Grant books. They seem to have had also a major impact on his image. Yes, and I do think that we have begun to, I mean, this is my opinion, but we've begun to rightly prioritize that one category that you had, which is, uh, how do you guys put it, treating Americans as equals? Yes. In, in fact, we do. It's pursued equal justice for all. Right. So s- several of the presidents, include Jackson, you mentioned, is one of them. But also Rutherford Hayes, his rating has gone down. And I think he is tarred with a- ending the, you know, the, the South after the Civil War, bringing the troops back home. And uh, actually, the circumstances surrounding that decision were much more complicated when you read history about it but is his reputation during his presidency. Another one is Grover Cleveland, and Cleveland, you'll learn in our chapter on him, really had a pretty poor record on race issues. So I think there are several presidents, again, judging through contemporary society when people are looking at them that say, hey, they didn't do so well. Brian, I know that you served in the, mm, generally speaking, you were like a body man for LBJ, but Eisenhower was very much present in your lifetime. You thought about him. Are you surprised that he's so well regarded by history? He's the fifth greatest president, according to the historians in your book. I am not surprised based on what I felt about him when I was young. The only part about him that I do remember, I mean, I remember him uh, being in the public media. There are two things that he was known as being boring. And so that often is the wrong way to judge anything. The other thing was he had a health, serious health problems, a couple of heart attacks. He was in the hospital a lot. But those were eight fairly peaceful years. 
And so it depends on again what is it you want. You can being fifth. I would. I just. I don't think in terms of where presidents belong. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I don't judge them based on on where they fit in this this survey. So he was a solid American, successful president, with one major scandal, his chief of staff, and otherwise, you know, pretty successful time. Brian, how many? How many presidential biographies would you say you've read in your life? Well, I can tell you that he's read 43 of them. <laughs> <laughs> At least, right? <laughs> right, we because they're interviews. all in the book. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, in the case of – I probably – interesting, in the case of Grant, I've read through four. By the way, I love reading them. I'm not a historian, and I don't consider myself an expert in any of this. It's just really fun to get to know the country through these characters. I uh, did something that is very strange. Most people will look at me like I'm crazy, and I might be, but I went to all the grave sites of all the presidents, and then I followed up by going to all the grave sites of all the vice presidents. Wow. And, yeah, people go, really? Uh, get a day job. Do something. Uh, <laughs> but it was a great teaching tool for me because I kind of, you know, I get a feeling for where they are in the country and what the atmosphere was and all that stuff, and then along the way you learn a lot. But it's uh, – I just remember back as you were talking about President, my father really didn't like – I wouldn't. I don't know if the word hate is it, but didn't like Harry Truman. Huh. And if he were al- al- alive today, he would love Harry Truman because Truman is very popular in our survey. And when it's one of the most interesting lives of all the presidents. And he doesn't get talked about much, but when you get into it, he really made decisions and was strong about his decisions. And he's just got one of the most interesting stories of any of them. And what's amazing about Truman is it really demonstrates the impact that one book can have on a president's reputation. That's true. David McCullough really had people revisiting his presidency because he was really very unpopular when he left office. When you talk to the biographers, do you get the sense, it it is usual, and Chernow even admits this, that he wouldn't want to spend time with someone he didn't like. (laughs) And then there's a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome where if you spend so much time, you perhaps begin to see the good in that person. So do you notice an inclination for most biographers to like their subjects? And then in terms of an honest assessment, uh, what do you do, for instance, say, Brian, when you're interviewing those biographers? Well, Brian, talk about Robert Caro, because you've done four at least major interviews with him, and all all of his adult life almost has been spent in the study of one president. But he's not in love with him. I, I don't want to be flip about this because Robert Caro is a, a man that everybody is interested in biography knows, and they have their very strong positive feelings about the work he's done. I don't think he's made up his mind what he thinks about Lyndon Johnson. I think that's part of his struggle to get the the last of of the five books out. Mm. He knows he doesn't like what he did in Vietnam, but he hasn't written that part of it yet. He knows he loves what he's done with civil rights, and he's written that. Uh, So, you know, it depends on the person. Some of these people are totally in love with their, their subject. It's an important part of studying a biographer, and when you read these books, you need to dip farther than what's on that paper to get some idea of why they felt so strongly to spend as long as, sometimes as much as 14, 15 years. One of our special people in this book is Richard Norton Smith, who's a historian that's written books from George Washington to uh, Colonel McCormick, the former owner of the Chicago Tribune, is currently working on the, probably the, I'm sure it's the definitive biography of Gerald R. Ford. And 
I don't. I've never asked Richard whether he, he loves or likes or hates. I don't. I know he doesn't dislike him because yeah. he, <laughs> he did, did, did the eulogy at his funeral. So yeah. he and he'd also be the first him. person ever to dislike Gerald Ford. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. But he is fussing over Gerald Ford right now. Yeah, going through twenty five chapters to, to write about his life, and he's just fascinated. As close as he was to him, he's just fascinated by what he's finding uh, about his ordinary beginning extraordinary life that most people don't know about to uh, what he was as a president. So it varies. Depends on the It depends on the situation. But you need to go beyond just reading the book. You need to think through whether or not a biographer really hates or, or uh, likes uh, who they're writing about. Your question reminds me of the Bill Clinton chapter. We used David Marinus's biography first in his class, as yeah. the basis for that chapter. And the very last pa- paragraph in, in our chapter from Brian's interview really speaks to this. He says, the hardest thing was to decide in my own mind what I felt about this guy. I'd go back and forth violently because there were chapters in his life where I liked him and chapters where I didn't. So I would beat myself up saying, make up your mind, you've got to decide. And then I realized he's a dual person and I had it right. Yeah, yeah. Ambivalence is sometimes a great narrative force uh, if you're masterful enough to be able to communicate that to the reader. Let me ask you a couple C-SPAN questions. 40th anniversary, and I love C-SPAN. Do you think that, I've heard you in interviews say this, that your coverage of the uh, correspondence dinner, especially putting it on C-SPAN and seeing Seth Meyers make jokes and seeing Donald Trump get upset with this, do you give some credence to that the, the idea that that might be one of the things that inspired him to run for president? Everybody writes this. Uh, I've ne- we've never said it. Uh, mm-hmm. That was some video that has been used many, many times of Trump sitting at the table and uh, President Obama uh, working him over in the crowd. But who knows? I think more than anything, uh, the v- vision that the country has gotten about the White House Correspondents' Dinner has not worked to the benefit of the correspondents. And I've been in this town for 53 years. I don't go to them anymore. I'll never go to another one if I don't have to for some reason. I don't think that that's what journalists should be doing. Never did. But I think it's important for the country to see what it's like. 3,000 people all dressed up in a room. Their sources are there. There's a lot of drinking that goes on. It's just not a healthy environment if you call yourself a journalist. And they've tried to go back to basics this, this year by having Ron Chernow speak. Uh, because they were doing some self-examination. But you know that that scene that you described would have happened whether or not her camera was in the room. There were eleven or 1,200 people who mattered to Donald Trump and to, to President Obama at the time who all would have heard those same jokes. So the right. question is, did the camera make a difference? Or really was it the, if this scenario is as influential as people write, would it have happened simply by virtue of be, them being in that setting, camera or no camera? I want to. I interviewed uh, a friend of mine, Steve Kornacki, who wrote a book, "The Red and the Blue: The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism." He's not the first to put this forward, but he really emphasizes and underlines the importance of C-SPAN in the rise of Newt Gingrich. How he used C-SPAN and the fact that they would just televise his speeches on whatever, and he used that as a platform to help gain power. Do you put much credence in that idea? Well, I'll tell you something that's never been written before, and I, you know, historians might be interested in this, but one day Newt Gingrich was in the lobby of our building, and you know, I, we, we started chatting. I mean, I'd done a number of interviews with him and all that, and he said, 
Do you know who I was really talking to on the floor of the House of Representatives when C-SPAN started in 1979, 1980, 81? It had to be 81. And I said, no, who was it? He said, I was talking to the staff at the White House. I wanted the Reagan staff to hear my ideas. That was more important to me than anything. I'd never heard that before, and I've never heard it since, because the the general view is that he used that to whip everybody into shape from his point of view, created the conservative opportunity society, then got the leadership in 1995, and went on from there. I don't think there's any question the fact that uh, the House of Representatives went on television was a help to him, and he would say that himself. He said it many times, help to him in getting his message out. So here's my last question. This is just about my favorite thing with C-SPAN, which is one of my favorite things overall. A presentation or a committee, uh, someone testifying before a committee uh, will end, and the people who are who were testifying will think that they're off mic and off screen, but the mics are still on and the mics pick up snippets of conversation. Do you have a favorite of anything that's ever been said and picked up that way? Well, I'm going to let Brian answer, but you should have, if if you were here in the studio with us, you would have seen him raise his arms up high when you (laughs) describe that because Brian has been such a champion throughout our 40 years of the before and after the gavel comes down. So we're gavel to gavel coverage and a little more is what it boils down to. And you really see beyond the facade of the show of Washington when in those moments. Brian, do you have a favorite among them? Actually, my favorite moment about the last two minutes of any hearing was one day I got a call from Meg Greenfield, who was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. I did not know her. I had never met her. And she said, could we have lunch? And it, she was very powerful in this town, much more powerful, I think, than the editorial page is today. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd glad, be glad to. And when we got to lunch, first thing she said to me, The most important thing about C-SPAN is the last two minutes of every hearing. (laughs) I just love it. And so consequently, uh, that was for me uh, a very strong positive feeling because I think I got my education in Washington by going in the hearing room and watching it for myself. And when a chairman or a ranking member comes off the dais after they've just been pounding on some witness and goes Mm -hmm. up and backslaps and shakes hands and knows that the next fundraiser is just around the corner, it's very important for the public to see that. I'll just leave it at that. And can I tell you, Mike, that when we often, when we hire new producers, it's one of the first things that they want to cut because conventional TV rules are the event's over, we're on to the next thing. And we really have to work with people to say, no, 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 let it breathe, let it (laughs) breathe. That's the gold. (laughs) It's true. And thank you for mentioning it, Mike. That's a victory. You made Brian's day. (laughs) So awesome. (laughs) The name of the book is The President's Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. It was put together by Brian Lamb and Susan Swain, the founding CEO and co-CEO of C-SPAN, now in its 40th year. Thank you. What a fun conversation. Thank you. Historians frequently rate the greatest presidents of all time. Lincoln does well. Washington does well. Hoover less so. And when they do, they take into account such qualities as financial stewardship, leadership ability, Those are all fine, fine virtues, but they're not the most important. The name of the book is The Hottest Heads of State. This is volume one, The American Presidents, and the authors are the husband and wife team of J.D. and Kate Dobson. Hello, guys. 
Hi. Um, Thank you for having us. So you rate all the presidents on three consistent measures, and then there's sort of a wild card. All the presidents get rated on looks, physique, and charisma, and then you invent uh, a rubric upon which to judge them. How did Grant do in this regard? Well, as I stall for time and Kate looks it up in our book, (laughs) um, Grant does extremely well in looks. He was a very handsome man. Yes. Charisma... He wasn't a guy who walks into the party and he's the center of attention and he's cracking jokes. He was a more quiet person. He liked to be by himself. So we do not rate him quite as highly on that. We give him a question mark for physique because when he was in the army, sort of famously and very unlike the you know rough and tumble nudity of the 19th century army, apparently, he wouldn't get <laughs> naked in front of the other men when they bathed. He insisted on going off by himself. So... You know, the contours of his physique, unfortunately, remain a mystery to historians. Well, I would I would surmise back knee. <laughs> <laughs> you must have a, a historical background yourself. That's, um, you've, you've done your own research into Grant. Or at least back knee. <laughs> so you rank all the presidents, like I say, looks, physique, and charisma. And I just want to perhaps nitpick on some of your scores. You give Reagan, you give Reagan a three on physique. I think of maybe movie star Reagan doing better. Now, at the time, as when he was president, he was in his 70s, the oldest president at the time. So don't you have to norm for that? Why, why such a low score for Reagan's build? We rated them on their time in office just because that's the only way we have an even playing field because we don't really have portraits or photos of all of the presidents when they were younger. And so rating them on their physique when we don't have consistent information about their physique when they were 25. Yeah. So, yeah, he is penalized for being old, as he should be. You rate Andrew Johnson an eight on charisma. How do you get that? Well, charisma is such a, a interesting trait. I mean, I, I think it is true that it is a thing that exists in the world, and you can objectively say this person is charismatic and this person isn't, but I think it is also true that the charisma of an Obama works on some people and it doesn't work on other people. The charisma right. of a George W. Bush, you know, for some people, his accent says authentic and and honest and salt of the earth. And other people, the accent says nails on chalkboard and affectation. And Andrew Johnson was an effective public speaker. He wasn't going to get up there and give sophisticated policy arguments and be stringing really long sentences together. But he was good at uh, whipping up a crowd. I can't and- think of anyone else like that. That's weird in our <laughs> history of our presidency. That's funny. Hmm. What president without facial hair would have benefited the most from facial hair and vice versa? I am going to throw a couple ideas out here. Um, Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. He had a really round face and I think he would have looked a lot tougher with a beard. Nice. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know that I could say he would necessarily look better, but the idea of an alternate universe where Ronald Reagan had a big flowing beard just (laughs) blows my mind, and it's something I would have loved to see. I think Rutherford B. Hayes definitely should have shaved his beard because if you see a photo of him without his beard, he is incredibly handsome. Yes. And when you see a photo of him with his beard, all you see is just... Just beard. a ton of beard. And when you when your name is Rutherford and especially Rutherford B. <laughs> Hayes, you just wanna you just wanna go as unencumbered as you can. Life has weighed you down with accoutrements <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> Hottest president, who'd you find? Well, I think that depends on a little bit of it depends on the taste of the of the reader, but the answer is Franklin Pierce for everyone. 
<laughs> I think so. Um, I think you're right. He was he, he was perpetually you. young looking. I don't think it's Pierce. I don't know who I would say it is, but I would say just in the last several administrations, I think Obama's probably better looking than Pierce. I think George W. Bush probably is. I think arguably Bill Clinton is. Which president started out as the most handsome youth only to curdle into a somewhat disappointing man? Oh, my gosh. There are so many answers to that. Boy, if you want to keep your looks, do not become president is a, is a tip I would put out there for anybody <laughs> wanting to, to stay good looking. My vote would probably be Ford. Mm. He was literally a cover model in his youth. And when you look at a photo of Ford as president, probably if you were playing a word association game, you would not think cover model. Although he probably made more magazine covers as president. I'm just going to guess. Well, that's, that's a fair point. So if your goal is to get on magazine covers, I do recommend you become president. Or just make them up yourself and post them in your golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is Hottest Heads of State, Volume 1, The American Presidents. I have a feeling it's a little like uh, Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1. But it does invite the idea, <laughs> at least in the uh, reader's imagination, of Volume 2, and that would be Heads of State of the World. And I guess the question there is, you know, you got guys like Castro and Mugabe who ran their countries for into the ground for, you know, 30 years. <laughs> what era do you take? Just the best looking? You give them the best benefit of the doubt, a la James Garfield? You know, I think we would do one of two things. We would do either current leaders, which it gets tricky whether you're looking at current leaders or at historical leaders. Those would be the two different approaches. Either way, I kind of hate to write a thing on Mugabe <laughs> or, you know, leaders... Well, you know, in all seriousness, you hate to trivialize awful dictators by cracking a bunch of jokes about how good looking they are. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of funny how when we started doing this stuff years ago, you know, we would crack a bunch of jokes about Putin and no, doesn't he look silly riding on a horse with no shirt on? Ha ha ha. And that was kind of – insensitive isn't the right word, but it was thoughtless about, oh, there are actually a lot of people who are suffering and dying because of what this guy's like and we're right. cracking jokes about what a goofball he is. Well, I guess the closest you'll come to that is the Andrew Jackson jokes. Well, and we, <laughs> we've got a few of those. Coincidentally, we were at the Andrew Jackson site, the Hermitage in Nashville, on the day after the election in 2016. And it was quite an experience touring through the Andrew Jackson Museum and Library, well, the day that, that our current president was elected. Did you know that soon he would be citing Jackson as his uh, spiritual forefather? I think we could sense it. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, the, uh, there was, they had these big banners up with the hashtag born for a storm, and it just looked exactly like something, <laughs> like this was a preview of what the, the Trump Presidential Museum is going to be like, where they don't really mention the Trail of Tears, or maybe there was like an <laughs> asterisk somewhere. Yeah. A lot of it is about the Battle of New Orleans. He really likes to hang his hat on that. couple points, though. Uh, Jackson, actual general, and Jackson had accomplishments. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I, I think both yes. – there, there are a lot of similarities between Jackson and Trump. But Jackson, it was important that he won the Battle of New Orleans, important-ish, and he was a successful general. I mean, those were not traits that qualified him to be president, I would argue. But And, and someone who built his way up from just nothing. Which – I would argue Donald Trump didn't quite make his Not way up from nothing. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> J.D. and Kate Dobson are co-authors of The Hottest Heads of State. This is volume one, The American Presidents. Let me just say, of all the books I've read this month, none deliver on their promise so much as this one. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you. Oh, it's thank early you in so the much. month, but yes. thank you so yes. much. <laughs> 
that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.